1, God's Word, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the Beloved. And have we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, would these words... Would the listening as we hear these words be to the praise of your glory? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the summer of 1991, my father loaded up his car, got in his car, and drove off to head to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas for two weeks of his active duty service since he was in the reserves. Not more than 10 minutes later, he was back at the house and he said to me and my brother, Hey, would you all like to go with me up to the base? And we're like, sure. So in a mad dash, we, you know, we were boys, didn't have to get that much, threw a couple things in a bag, and we were in the car and headed off. Two weeks, we got to go to the gym, we got to go to the library, we got to play tennis, we got to do all kinds of fun things. But one thing they have on a military base is a movie theater. And that summer was the release of Beauty and the Beast. And we watched it more than once. You may remember the movie, Belle stumbles into the castle, and once the servants find her, they rush her to a dining room where they sing... Be Our Guest. You know, it's a fun, energetic song, but it's actually a little philosophical. For in it, one of the servants, Lumiere, says, Life is so unnerving. For a servant who's not serving, he's not whole without a soul to wait upon. It's a rather provoking statement begging the question, What makes you whole? Servants are made for serving. And they're completely lost without the joy of being able to do it. That's the whole point of the song. These servants have been miserable for 10 years because they don't have anyone who wants to be served. So what were you made for? What am I made for? Is there even any meaning or purpose to our existence? As you lay in your bed tossing and turning and your mind wanders through various things, then you go, why am I even here? Well, what's the purpose of everything? What do you answer? You know, tragically, many people live without any meaning or purpose to their life. Just before COVID, a study was done in the UK, and 89% of people between 16 and 29 reported that they had no meaning or purpose to their life. So if you had 10 friends, 
Nine of them are living day in and day out just doing the next thing. There's no overarching meaning or purpose behind what they are living for. What about you? Are you living with any meaning or purpose? Or just going from event to event, job to job, exercise to exercise, but if you stop to go, why am I doing all this? I don't know. I'm existing. I'm here. Well, Paul moves from his introduction to giving an extended praise of God. It's such a rich description that we'll kind of camp here on verses 3 through 14 for a few weeks. But I'd like to begin by noting the purpose that Paul gives for everything God does and everything we should do. First, from these verses, we're going to see that everything was made to glorify God. The next, we're going to see that God acts for the praise of His glory. And then, we're going to kind of leap from those to go, but doesn't that pose a problem? Doesn't that mean God's like super selfish and narcissistic? I want everyone to praise me. But there's actually a unity between us having joy in life and God getting glory. And so we'll end kind of thinking of that implication. But the first section, everything made to glorify God. Paul follows his introduction with a Christianized adaption of their letter writing style. You know, we mentioned last week that Paul began writing a letter the way they normally do, by giving his name, Paul, and then who he's writing to, to the Ephesians. That's the way they wrote their letters. Yet, then they would normally in their letters offer a prayer to whatever God they believed in for the recipient's health. Well, Paul will give a prayer in verses 15 through 23. We'll get there in a few weeks. But he doesn't pray for their physical health. Rather, he prays for their spiritual well-being. But before that, Paul gives this exuberant praise for God. And I say exuberant on purpose because though we don't see it in our English translation, verse 3 through 14 is actually one ongoing, but not a run-on, you grammarians, sentence in Greek. Paul is just phrase after phrase rejoicing in what God has done for us in Christ. It's like someone who's just seen their team win the Super Bowl. And after the game, they just get so they're rehashing every single play. Do you remember when he caught, oh, and when that guy, they were going to win and he knocked it down? And they're just, they're so excited. Paul is so excited for what God has done for him, for us in Christ. Well, Paul does this by using a standard Hebrew blessing to God. We see the same blessing by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. When his lips are opened after John the Baptist is born, he prays in Luke 1, 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Just like this blessing begins. And then Zechariah and Paul don't just say, Blessed be the Lord. They then give reasons for it. Why God should be blessed. Now we need to be clear, because we say, Oh, bless the Lord. And we say, God blesses us. But we mean radically different things. When we say God blesses us, that's because he gives us things that we need. We don't give anything to God that he needs or doesn't have sufficiently. However, when God blesses us, we are receiving from God all kinds of things that we desperately need. We need God to give us health, mental capabilities, resources, forgiveness of sins, adoption, and on and on. In fact, our blessing God through words that he doesn't need is our right and proper response to God blessing us. That's Paul's point. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's blessed us in Christ and with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
You know, God made this dynamic where he blesses us, and in response, we give words of blessing back to him. And we see this even in the inspired songbook, the Psalms, for they're actually grouped into five different books. And listen to the words of the end of each book. If you, you, It would take too long for us to pause and flip to each one. But the first book ends with Psalm 41, and it says, 41.13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The second book ends with Psalm 72, and the last two verses of that psalm say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Book 3 in Psalm 89, verse 52 ends, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The fourth book of the Psalms ends in Psalm 106, and it, in verse 48, says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And then the final book, the ending of the Psalms, it's a little rebellious, I guess, because it says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But I think praise the Lord's pretty close to bless the Lord. The whole point is, all of the Psalms are calling us. They're ending each one saying, Well, what was this all about? Bless the Lord. Your life is to praise God. Now, of God's creatures on earth, humans give the clearest and most distinct praise to God. But in fact, all of creation is to praise God and will do so. Isaiah 55, 12 tells of God's future renewal of all things. And it says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. The hills, the rocks, the mountains, they will sing and praise God. Everything in creation is made to praise God. That's why Romans 8 talks about creation groaning as it's in futility now due to the curse of sin and wanting to return to the glory that God gave it. Thus, everything is made to praise God, and we see that here explicitly in Ephesians 1, look at verse 11. In verse 11 it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having, and now it's going to tell us how we obtained that inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But why? Well, he tells us we are given this inheritance so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of his glory. We were saved to be to the praise of God's glory. Our adoption, our inheritance, everything he gives us is so that we are to live for the praise of his glory. Now let me offer a quick clarification of what Paul means because from the rest of the letter and the rest of the Bible, we know that this doesn't mean to be for the praise of God's glory that you go around singing all the time. Being a person that glorifies God is not limited to so-called spiritual activities such as, well, I'm glorifying God when I'm reading my Bible, but then when i got to stop and make oatmeal for the family, now I'm in the non-glorifying God phase. But then I get all the kids away so I can pray for a minute. Okay, glorifying God again. Oh, there's a fight. Got to go break that up. Back to the non-glorifying. No, the Bible flips the script. Rather than saying you've got to do certain things 
that are honoring God. It says everything you do can be and should be done for God. And we even see that in this letter. First three chapters are all about God doing stuff for us. And then what's the response? Well, it does mention singing once or twice. But it's not about how to lead worship services. Chapter 4 is speak the truth to one another in love. It's about being generous with your money. It's about being loving and kind and forgiving. Chapter 5 is about your relationships in marriage. Chapter 6 is how you interact with your boss and your children and your parents. In other words, the response to God's salvation is not to go get a new job or go get a new role or go get a new title. It's rather whatever job, role, title, whether that be child, student, parent, retired person, whatever you have, there you're called to live for God. Now hopefully that clarifies any misunderstanding as though praising God is just singing. But there's an objection that if you don't have, I'm sure many of our friends, co-workers, and families might have. That is, isn't this very demoralizing though? You know, we're saying we were not made for ourselves, we're made for someone else. Doesn't that make us ultimately worthless? Now, if you listen to modern thinking, you would definitely be inclined to say that. Several years ago, Lady Gaga said, I'm teaching people to worship themselves. Don't have to read between the lines much there. It's hard for people to want to make much of God to serve God when they think everyone... Even God was created to make much of them and how great they are. Yet while our society encourages us to put our own priorities first, that won't actually lead to your lasting joy. You know, haven't we all had a relationship or had a thing that we desperately wanted? We work hard, we get it. Maybe it's an achievement, an award, and we work, work, and we get it, and then we get it and we go, that was it. Okay, I got the trophy. Now it's collecting dust. We worked, it worked. We thought, if only I can get that. If only I can win that game. If I only can get that promotion. And we get it. And we go, eh, it wasn't that great. The reason is we were not made to find our ultimate pleasure in serving ourselves or in any other created thing. Rather, we were made to find our ultimate pleasure in the Creator and living like Him by serving others. It's funny, even movies catch this sometimes. In 1995, the first full-length computer animated graphic movie was made. You know the story. Toy Story. Where Andy receives a Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger toy. And Buzz goes around thinking he's the actual Buzz Lightyear protecting the galaxy from the evil Emperor Zerg. There's the other character, Woody, who is going crazy trying to deal with Buzz, and finally, in exasperation, he shouts, You are a toy. You aren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're, you're an action figure. You're a children's plaything. And what does Buzz do? He scoffs. You're a silly little man. And yet then, he realizes he's a toy. And do you remember what happens next? He becomes depressed. He sits there. He doesn't want to do anything. It's pointless. And he says, you were right all along. I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy. A stupid little insignificant toy. See, Buzz had come to grasp his identity. He was correct on that he was a toy, but he had not come to grasp the meaning of his identity. 
Because then Woody lets him know, actually, being a toy is better than being a space ranger. Look over there, Woody says, and that house is a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And then what does he do? He lifts up his little shoe and he sees Andy written across the bottom. And then, oh, buzzes back. He's ready and eager to get out, to go back. Why? What's going on? Well, once Buzz knows his meaning, he has confidence. He has hope. Once he realizes the value of being made for the pleasure of another, he delights to live in light of that. You, me, we were all made to live for the pleasure of another. We were made for the pleasure, the praise of God. Now, imprinted on your soul is not Andy. Imprinted on your foot is not anything. Because imprinted on your whole being is God's. He didn't need to put on your foot because your whole body is saying, I am God's. So, you may never become a famous space ranger or army ranger. You might never be attractive, athletic, academic. You might never be the person that people come in the room and they go, oh, I want to go talk to them. You might be the person who's always eking out an existence financially. You have a lackluster life, but imprinted on you is God's. You were made for the pleasure and glory of God. That doesn't mean that our joy or our happiness is irrelevant. Not at all. But before we examine that, we must see that God's glory motivates all of His actions. And that's the second point. God acts for the praise of His glory. Paul tells us three times why God blesses us so richly, beginning right before verse 5. Notice it says, In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. That's the purpose. Why did He do that? For the praise of His glorious grace. Or go down, verse 11, we've read it before. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. A second time, or look, 13 to 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it. Why? To the praise of His glory. Over and over, Paul is saying, God did all these things not for some random reason. It's for the praise of His glory. Now, I'm sure there are two questions arising in people's minds. I mean, is this really what the Bible says? And then closely after, if not before it is, the question we already raised is, doesn't that make God selfish? An egomaniac? A narcissist? Well, let's look at the first question. Is this really what the Bible teaches? Well, there's many verses, but let me just give a few. God says in Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake... O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. He couldn't have been clear. He says, I'm not acting for you. I'm acting for me. Many of us are encouraged by the 23rd Psalm. You might have it memorized. And remember the third verse. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This last Wednesday, we gathered to pray, and Keith was leading us and looking at Psalm 143, where the psalmist is crying out for God's mercy and God's help. And what was his reason why he called out to God saying, Would you help me? Verse 11 of Psalm 143, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. And we could give many other scriptures that say various things like that. And it's not limited to the Old Testament. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that we are to seek his kingdom first. And his call to discipleship over and over is abandon everything and follow him. In other words, Jesus calls us to live for the glory of God, for his kingdom first. Now some really struggle with this, for they've wrongly placed God's love as the center of God's actions. Now God's love is amazing. And we're told in 1 John, God is love. As well, it was because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal eternal life. That verse is completely true. But it's also completely true that God sent Jesus to die for our sins so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. God's holiness, God's compassion, and many other attributes led Jesus to coming. God's acts of love, justice, mercy, compassion, and on and on are all so that his glory, his name, his character might be known, enjoyed, and honored. When we realize that God acts for his glory, for his name's sake, then we have our compass rightly aligned. If we lose that compass reference point, we're going to get lost in this journey of life. When I was in high school, it became popular for people to wear wristbands. I'm dating myself here. And on the wristbands were four letters. W-W-J-D. What would Jesus do? And recently I was told that those bracelets have come back with W-W-J-D and then H-W-L-F. What would Jesus do? He would love first. On one level, yes, Jesus would love first because he would love second, third, and all the way to the end. Everything he does is love. But what do we mean when we say he would love first? Because out of love, Jesus drove money changers out of the temple. Out of love, Jesus forgave the woman caught in adultery and then also in love told her to go and sin no more. Out of love, Jesus warned of hell more than any other person in the Bible. So, We can't take this random attribute of love, give it meaning that we think it has, and then go, well, God's love, Jesus would love first. So we should never say, fill in whatever you think people shouldn't say. Rather, we must look at all of God's character. We should delight in God's love, but we should realize it alone is not the driving force of his actions. The driving force of God's actions was the glory of his name. We even see this in Jesus' life. In John 14 through 17, he's at the Last Supper with his disciples. And in John 17, he prays. And you may remember, what does he pray to his father? He says, verse 4, I have accomplished all the works that you've given me to do. But there's a phrase right before that. What did he do when he accomplished all the works that his father gave him to do? It says, I glorified you 
on earth. Jesus lived for the glory of the Father. His mission was to glorify God by doing the task God gave him. Thus, we too must live for God's glory. That's why Paul says even mundane things, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it not for the love of God, though that is a good thing to work for, but for the glory of God. And when people solely focus on God's love, which again is wonderful and we should delight in it, but when they solely focus on that, they often have a hard time making sense of God's sending of a flood, God sending Israel into exile, God's coming judgment. Yet all of that and more makes sense if the north on the compass is not love, but glory. Thus the Bible is clear that God acts and he expects, expects us to act so that he might be praised and honored. And yet that big begs the second question. Doesn't this make God a selfish narcissist? I mean, just imagine if we heard some politician say, y'all need to not only need to vote for me, you need to think I'm the best person ever. If you had a friend and they said, my spouse just wants me to love them more than anything else, we would say, that's not healthy. That's being an egomaniac. And the main problem, I think we have a hard time with God saying these things, that he acts for his glory, is we only think of people who are humans. And every time they act for their own glory, it is selfish. It is narcissistic. It is being an egomaniac. But God is not like humans. Humans do that because they need, I need your praise, they think. God doesn't need anything. You know, the God who made the world and everything in it, he doesn't live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by any human hands. It's, he doesn't need anything because he gave all mankind life and breath and everything. Also, since God is the greatest being that exists, it is his love that allows us to know him and that makes his glory known. It's for our good that he makes his glory the meaning of all that he does. Now, perhaps an illustration will help. Imagine a young married couple, Bob and Betsy. I know very original names here. And Bob and Betsy learn of a horrible disease. And they're so burdened by this disease that is ransacking people's lives that they give up their careers and they enter medical school. And then in medical school, they study how they can fight diseases. And then they give decades into research and to testing. And so they can finally, after decades, have a drug that will cure the disease. However, just when they're ready to start going and administering it, another company comes on the market and promises a drug that will bring healing and at half the price. However, there's a problem that's not known to the masses that this cheaper drug, it'll mask the symptoms for a while. But silently, the disease is growing until it swiftly ravishes the body. So what is the loving thing for Bob and Betsy to do then? It's to as clearly and loudly as they can say, say, don't take that. Take our drug. Well, now, isn't that selfish? Isn't that thinking only about them? Well, no, because they know what they are offering is the only thing that will bring life. What the other people is offering is only going to lead to death. Yeah, no, you'll be better for a little bit. Yes, you will. But in the long run, you're going to harm yourself. Well, there is something much worse than a human disease. 
In an infinitely more important way, God knows His glory is the best thing. To not call us to love and adore Him above all else would actually be to allow us to pursue the drug that leads to our long-term death. In fact, God's glory and our joy are intimately, ultimately united. And that's our third point. The unity of our joy in God's glory. The, really, the ultimate battle in temptation is to believe that God works for our good. This is the temptation all the way back to the garden because what is Satan tempting Adam and Eve? God told them, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan tempts, well, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good or evil. Good and evil, excuse me. In other words, Satan's saying, look, God doesn't want your joy. He's trying to keep something back. He's selfish. He doesn't want to give it all to you. God only cares about God, is what Satan is tempting them with. And at its heart, every sinful temptation is suggesting some form of that. Yeah, that's going to be pleasing, but God in some book, if he even spoken, that says you can't. He doesn't really want you to enjoy life. He doesn't know what's best. You need to do what you know is best. You see, the reality is every person is living for something, whether they realize it or not. You know, most people never sit down and go, I'm wrapping my life around my sports car. They never sit down and say, I'm living for popularity. But their anxiety, where their money goes, their emotions, it shows what they're living for. You know, someone probably won't state, my life is meaningless without a romantic relationship. But the way people are depressed because they don't have one shows what they think life is about. Now, the problem is not that we want a sports car or that we want to be in a relationship. Those things are not bad. The problem is when we search for meaning and purpose in the creation rather than the creator. When we buy the lie that something in creation will bring ultimate meaning, we only harm ourselves. The Bible often talks about this using the language of thirst and water. For example, Jeremiah 2, 12-13 says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sadly, our thirst are like the man floating at the, in the sea who thinks, if I only lean over and start drinking, I'll be fine. And yet, he doesn't realize the salt water will only increase his thirst till it kills him. And we see this played out in John 4, which was read earlier. In John 4, Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman who comes to draw water from a well. When she arrives, Jesus asks for for a drink, and she's shocked because normally in that time, Jewish men would never ask Samaritan women for water. Jesus responds, though, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman scoffs like, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get me any water? You don't even have a shovel. Well, what, how are you going to give me water? Jesus then gets to the heart of the matter, though, by saying, Everyone who drinks of this water in the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty 
again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the woman is excitedly asking for the water because, hey, if I get this water, I'm not coming back tomorrow to pull more out. This water is going to satisfy my thirst forever. Yet the story then takes some twists and turns. They go through a discussion of who is the Messiah and all that. And in that, Jesus calls her to get her husband. And she replies, well, I don't have none. Jesus, though, gets to the root of her thirst by declaring, yes, you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and one you know now have is not your husband. They talk more about the places of worship, how to worship, and the coming Messiah. And then Jesus declares that he is the Messiah. And as the disciples return, she goes to return to her town to tell them about him. But John adds a fascinating comment about her departure. He says, the woman left her water jar. You know, she'd come out because she was thirsting. But she wasn't really thirsting just for H2O. She was thirsting for meaning and purpose. And she was looking for it in a romantic relationship. But when she came to Jesus, she found a satisfaction to her thirst. She came out for deep physical water, but she didn't realize her deeper thirst could never be fulfilled with any water that is in this world. Her ultimate thirst could only be filled in Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't just say this here. He says this at other times. John 6.35, he said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know, the amazing thing is that Jesus... The satisfier of all thirst, thirsted himself. Here's a fascinating end to Jesus' life. John 19, he's been crucified, he's on the cross. And it says in verse 28, John 19, 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were finished, said, Now he didn't say it is finished. He says something before it is finished. What does he say? I thirst. Why is he thirsting? Well, one, he's a real human. He's been beat, he's been mistreated i am sure there is a physical side to this thirst that we shouldn't deny jesus was a real man real flesh and blood yet it just says he knew it's over if he knows it's over this drink in between doesn't do anything unless he's unless he's trying to convey something to us i think jesus is trying to convey that he thirsted because he had to drink what we deserved you know, he knew that he was about to die to take the cup of God's wrath to pay for all of our false thirst. Jesus thirsted and died because our sinful thirst brought about death. You see, God wants to bless you. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, It is your Father's good pleasure. Now I'm wondering how you think he's going to finish that. It's your God, Father's good pleasure to make you suffer so you can grow in sanctification. He's going to let you have it. It's your father's good pleasure to give good things to other people. No, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to give us a kingdom. Yet for God to bless us, Jesus must drink what we deserve. God's punishment. So we might drink what will only satisfy God himself. 
Thus God's desire for His glory to be known does not come from some selfish, narcissistic desires, but rather for us to have true joy is to want God's glory. And the only way for us to truly know and enjoy God's glory was for Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath for our sinful thirst. He is the source of all selfless, loving actions. God's call in calling you, God's goal in His calling you to glorify Him is not some selfish plot to take from you. He wants to give to you. He wants to give you the kingdom. Thus, there is this deep unity between our joy and God's glory. When we seek our joy in God, then God is also glorified. Or when we seek to glorify God, then we are most joyful. Jesus makes this connection crystal clear in John 14 and 16. That time where he is with the disciples, the night before his betrayal and then crucifixion. In John 14, 13, 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that, okay, why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. So here we pray because we want God to be glorified in the Son. The same night, John 16, 23 through 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you'll receive that. What's that? Your joy may be full. In the same conversation, he can talk about pray, because that leads to God's glory. Pray, because that leads to your joy. The two are one. So what is the meaning and purpose of life? What are you living for? What are your extra thoughts, energy, time, and money going towards? Paul makes known to us that we were made to live for the praise of God's glory. God acted for the praise of His glory, and the wonderful truth is that our joy and God's glory go together like fist and glove. Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. Are you whole? Is your life for the praise of His glory? If I may share one closing anecdote, I've shared before of Booker T. Washington, an African-American born into slavery in 1856, well, after the Civil War and his emancipation, he worked diligently to go to college where he met the president of the college, General Armstrong. Mr. Washington writes, I never saw a man who so completely lost sight of himself. He was just as happy in trying to assist some other institution in the South as he was when working for his college. It would be difficult to describe the hold that he had upon his students or the faith they had in him. I recall that one of the general's former students had occasion to push his wheelchair up a long, steep hill that taxed his strength to the utmost. When the top of the hill was reached, the former pupil, with a glow of happiness on his face, exclaimed, I am so glad that I have been permitted to do something that was real hard for the general before he dies. The young man's life was fulfilling because he was a servant who was serving. We are all serving something or someone. It might be yourself. It might be a cause. It might be another person. Only servants who serve are whole. Are you whole? 
You won't be whole until you see and taste the joy of serving for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are constantly tempted to serve, to seek after so many things. The thirst that wells up in our soul. Lord, may we see the real meaning and purpose there is in knowing you, in serving you. Lord, that that not only brings us joy, it brings you glory. So would you give us eyes to see? Would you get our eyes off all of the false thirst that are clinging for our attention? And may we find our joy and hope in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.